Ah, the great quest. The desire for glory and riches. But maybe there's something deeper. Throughout this entire season, we have been talking about the quest. The quest to discover the true you catastrophe in life. At the end of every quest is a treasure. And as we record this episode, we are going to reveal the treasure, the end goal of the great quest of you catastrophe that brings meaning and hope and joy into our lives. This is Into the Wardrobe. So this is our last episode of this season where we are breaking everything down and looking for the real quest for you catastrophe. This entire season, we have gone on searches from things in pop culture to history, just questions that we as Americans and Christians dabble with. Throughout this podcast journey, um, we've been looking at C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien's literature and seeing how they dive deeper into not just fun fantasy stories, but also how you can attach that to real life. These authors are known for their wonderful stories that take us on adventures and quests to find the ring that rules them all or to find Aslan's country. But the great thing is that when you read about them, you also learn about their real life journeys through faith and finding the real purpose in life. J.R.R. Tolkien coined this wonderful word, the catastrophe, which we have been searching this entire season of the podcast. He defines it as, the sudden happy turn in the story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. It's that moment where the music comes in, maybe John Williams is what I'm thinking of, and you don't even suspect that everything that was horrible has now just perfectly all fit together and your mind didn't see it coming. So throughout this season, we've talked about my journey from Netflix binge-watching Joe and I debating if Star Wars is better or looking at different historical characters. And in every single episode, where can we find that joy? And they kind of all fell into different categories. Some of them fell into, we are living in this very, very fast-paced world and we look for places to find a joy and sometimes we seek it in artificial things. Other times, we talk with the people who live in these oppressive times and where can they find the hope? And lastly, we looked at, in our daily lives, where are we called to go, and what do we do when we get there? As we're looking into this quest, it occurred to me that the concept of going on a quest is not something that's actually foreign, even to Scripture itself. And so I turned to Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 44, where Jesus tells a couple of quick but powerful parables. First, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And it occurs to me that what Jesus is describing in this parable is really a quest a quest to unlock a treasure so marvelous, so magnificent, so amazing that there is nothing else we have in this world that can compare to gaining that treasure. So that's really what we're looking for with this catastrophe. I believe this is what Lewis and Tolkien were pointing us to, is the fact that 
that great treasure it is a joy that can emerge out of even the darkest times that we encounter. As I talk about the dark times and, and, and its connection to Christian scripture, it dawns on me that mankind has been questing for treasure from the very beginning. We need only turn to the very introductory chapters of the book of Genesis, where we find the very first people, Adam and Eve, who are searching for something. Ironically, they are in the midst of the Garden of Eden. They are in paradise, and yet there's something within them that makes them desire more. And, and when that snake slithers into the garden and tempts Eve and her husband who is with her with that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and makes them a promise, a promise that if they were to just simply take and eat of that fruit, despite the warnings they had that this fruit would actually bring death, he tells them, no, it will make you to be like God. And suddenly the quest begins, the desire to find something greater, a greater purpose, a greater meaning. And so the woman reaches up and takes the fruit and bites into it and hands it to her husband and he eats it. And suddenly their eyes are open and what they expected to be a wonderful treasure, a quick resolution to a powerful quest actually unlocks the door to a darkness they never could have conceived. And as they attempted to take the place of God, they instead find that they've destroyed the very relationship with the one whom they desired to emulate. And it seems to me that in many ways, we in our own lives are engaged in a very similar quest. So often we go after something that is forbidden, something that, that seems to promise such treasure and such joy and such wealth. But underneath, there's an insidious underbelly. C.S. Lewis was once asked to give a speech to a group of collegians, and he actually warned them about this insidious underbelly, this quest for something that looks so powerful and so delightful, but will actually rob the joy from your very life. So you might be asking yourself, what is this thing that can destroy us at our inner being, even though we crave it? It's very simpler. It's popularity. It's status. It's the most valuable player. We all crave to be the top of the food pyramid. However, sometimes we focus on that so much we lose sight of what really matters and we end up sacrificing things that are a lot more important because we want to be the best. In C.S. Lewis's The Inner Ring, he talks very clearly about this. He says, the quest of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. But if you break it, a surprising result will follow. If in your working hours you make the work your end, you will presently find yourself all unaware inside the only circle in your profession that really matters. You will be one of the sound craftsmen, and other sound craftsmen will know it. This group of craftsmen will by no means coincide with the inner ring or important people or people in the know. It will not shape that professional policy or work up that professional influence, which fights for the professionalism as a whole against the public. 
nor will it lead to those periodic scandals and crises which the inner ring produces. But it will do things which the profession exists to do and will in the long run be responsible for all the respect which that profession in fact enjoys and which the speech and advertisements cannot maintain. So, might be a little wordy, but it's very obvious when you sit down and break it down into pieces of what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying, we tend to idolize some kind of position in our community, and we tend to sacrifice things. This could be as simple as maybe we focus so much on sports that we tend to not do our homework and educational. This can be people who are so focused on supporting their family and working long hours that they forget to spend time with their family. We see this in the media all the time where we see families being broken apart in Hollywood because they're making movies and they're not spending time with significant others. So we need to definitely take a step back when we're looking for the one thing that we crave or as J.R. Tolkien says, the, the ring that rules them all and say, is this really going to bring me happiness? Because I'm going to sacrifice something if I spend all of my time and attention in being the best or as C.S. Lewis says, the know-it-all. Stephanie, as I was listening to you break that down, something occurred to me. And we've talked about the whole concept of vocation in the past, that notion that we are called to be in these various relationships that you discussed. How interesting is it that what Lewis is warning us is that we're not called to be in the quest. We're not really called to be the questers. We're not called to go after these kind of things. But if we simply maintain the calls to which we have vocation, whether it's simply being the best teacher you can possibly be or being the best craftsman you can possibly be, that is enough and that's all we're called to. And I wonder if Lewis would maybe nod at the notion that when we seek after all of these other things and we go on these rather ubiquitous quests, we're actually getting dragged away from the very calling that's been given to us and in which we're supposed to find our joy. Now, there's an interesting thing, I think, that tails along with that and that very notion in literature of what a quest is. And as we were doing some research for the episode, I came across material for a fantasy fiction course offered by one Nancy Howard. And reading through some of her material, she had a really powerful concept around quests and kind of summarizing how the quest ends. And she writes this. For all their differences, stories of the quest attest to the same fundamental feature of the human spirit, not only a perennial hunger for renewal, but also an inextinguishable faith in its possibility. Many characters never accomplish their quests. Some are defeated before they begin. Every quest is in proportion. The stronger the desire for the treasure, the more courageous the hero. The more valuable the treasure, the more difficult the journey to attain it. And when attained, the more truly valuable the treasure and the transformation, the more complete his rebirth. Any one requirement for balance along the way can cause the hero to fail. But for every protagonist who fails, another succeeds. And in so doing, demonstrates the human potential for meaningful transformation, the ability of people to change their world and themselves for the better. It's interesting that when you get into the story of the quest and, and literature in particular, one of the main elements 
is that the protagonist never emerges unscathed from the quest. It can either bring great disaster or it can bring a, a spiritual, a personal transformation whereby the quester will never be the same. On one hand, maybe it's kind of like learning how to do your laundry for yourself and entering into that world of adulting where once you've done it, you can't really go back to the innocence of before, but the person you've become has so much more to offer the world around you. In fact, as I've done my own playing around in research on quests, what's really interesting is that usually quests for a tangible treasure end in abject failure for those who are seeking the treasure. But for those who are going on more of a spiritual quest, an inner quest, that's where true success and true transformation happens. Stephanie, you probably remember the story in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader of a young boy named Eustace who really liked that physical treasure. So we probably all have a family member just like Eustace. Um, when I watched the movie, the BBC version, I always thought of Eustace as the cousin that you have to sit with at the you know Thanksgiving kids' table that you really don't want to, but your mom looked at you and said, don't you say anything. I don't want a family fight when we go home. And we may have followed those directions, or we didn't, but Eustace is just this, this not-so-nice cousin of Lucy and Edmund, and you go on this adventure. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he comes um, across this wonderful gold bracelet, and he knows he shouldn't put it on, but for tangible quest and, and wanting this treasure, he decides to put it on. And what unfortunately happens is he turns into a dragon, and he's unable to pull the bracelet off because he has gotten bigger now. So he realizes the only way to get it off is by trying to claw it off. And he tries and he pulls off several layers of scales, but it's not successful. So finally he turns to Aslan and says, Aslan, what am I to do? And Aslan says, the only way to get it off is for me to do it. And Eustace is there reluctant at first because it's going to be very painful. Even the thought of Aslan clawing this horrible ring on, this thing that he desired at first, scared him and made him feel physical pain. And then he goes into describing Aslan clawing it off and feeling like it was a stab directly to his heart. But after constant excruciating pain to remove this thing that he had coveted and wanted more than anything, he has it finally clawed off and Aslan throws him into the water. And with all that horrible experience, the worst experience of his life, he finds also the greatest joy. He has returned to what he was originally supposed to be. But that's not the only time we see gold and dragons cause problems on quests. Stephanie, that's right. As a matter of fact, Lewis's good friend J.R. Tolkien takes on this very idea in The Hobbit. Remember that the basic story of The Hobbit is that the dwarves had been exiled from their underground kingdom because the dwarven king Thrain, I believe was his name, had coveted so much gold that it had attracted the dragon Smog, who came and cast out all of the dwarves and took over the gold horde. And so... Gandalf, the wizard, had gathered these 12 dwarves together along with Bilbo Baggins, the hobbit, to go back and retrieve the treasure and get rid of the dragon smog. But in the process, the son of Thrain, Thorin Oakenshield, the guy who was in charge of the entire fellowship, if it's okay for me to use that term ahead of the actual Lord of the Rings, 
by the time he gets to the treasure, by the time they're able to get rid of the dragon smog, he's overcome with what is referred to as gold sickness or even dragon sickness. And eventually what happens is he dies in part because of the greed that he's overcome with. He's not trusting his fellow adventurers. And Gandalf, his eulogy is basically this. He says, Thorin did not live to enjoy his triumph or his treasure. Pride and greed overcame him. And I think that's the real danger that when we go on a quest, when we're looking for this treasure, the pride and the greed will do us in. With you catastrophe, what we're looking for, or at least what we find, is maybe not what we're looking for. The you catastrophe is the hidden truth that we are doomed to fail our quests. How depressing is it to hear that after 12 episodes of this quest? We can never earn enough. We can never study enough. We can never do enough to purchase the kingdom of God. That pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in a field. We are doomed to fail before we even begin. And yet here's the catastrophe. It's in that failure that we find hope. Go back again to Genesis chapter 3. That failure of Adam and Eve as, the, as they're tempted by the snake, or in quest language, we might call him that ancient dragon. And when God appears and finds them in their shame and their nakedness, while he pronounces curse, ultimately the curse lands on the head of the serpent. And hidden in that curse is a promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Out of the pain comes hope. As we travel along through the story of God's people, remember Joseph, the bratty favorite brother who liked to rub it in the nose of the others that he was dad's favorite, finds himself thrown to the bottom of a well with looming death, whereby a gracious brother decides to sell him into slavery instead of outright killing him. And he winds up in Egypt for years and years with absolutely no contact with his family, his youngest brother, his father, believing he had been dead. And by the time the story is revealed, the brothers, the father, have come to Egypt in the midst of a famine. Joseph has been raised to a high position where he can protect his family and keep this lineage of that promised seed of the woman alive. And when his brothers come before him expecting retribution and death, he offers them forgiveness. In their moment of greatest despair, he simply acknowledges that what they intended for evil, God intended for good. We see these hidden eucatastrophes everywhere. We see them with David and the affair of Bathsheba, where David sees her bathing on the roof and then begins to have an affair with her and plots to kill her husband by putting him sneakily in the front line of the army. Because of this, their firstborn that is conceived during the affair dies, but they are blessed with their secondborn, which is Solomon. And Solomon becomes the king of the Israelites, and he takes the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place of God, and makes the permanent temple. But he doesn't just do this where God is permanently present with the Israelites, but he also passes on his seed, which slowly becomes the lineage of David into the Christ child of Bethlehem. 
So in the midst of Jesus' life now, as he becomes man and grows up, we see the Romans begin to take over the Jewish people. And what you expect would that be the priests, the leaders of this community, this great nation to protect them. However, they have become very power thirsty and corrupt for political power. They're searching for their inner ring. And Jesus decides to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes, and it's very scandalous. You know, maybe put it in the tabloid magazines of the day. And the priests stand outside, and they judge him. They say, how dare this man eat with sinners, where we would know that they're all sinners. But they have brought themselves so much into this inner ring and political MVPs of their time that they don't stop and see their own flaws. So Jesus decides to tell them the parable, the very famous parable we hear, probably the most out of all of them is the prodigal son, where he tells the story of the man with two boys, and the youngest goes to his father and demands his birthright, which is basically telling his father he'd rather have the inheritance and his father should be better off dead. The boy goes and squanders his riches and then finally realizes that he needs the love of the father. When he comes back, though, the oldest brother is very infuriated because he has always been the good son which is reflecting on our religious leaders of the time where they should have been going out just like the older brother and rescuing the brother who maybe squandered his inheritance, who was dealing with not appropriate lifestyle choices. And this is kind of a Jesus' way of saying, because you as the priests, the leaders of this community who did not do their job and focuses too much on being in the spotlight, I have to come now and rescue my people, which in the end is wonderful for us because it brings us hope. And here it is, Stephanie. You said it, hope. And in that hope is the reality that you and I and and our listeners are not the ones going on the quest even to find the kingdom of heaven. The true quest is actually God's quest. It is a quest that brings him from the majesty of heaven into a pit of despair down to a cross and finally storming the gates of Hades itself. It's a quest that he enters into to redeem his children, a quest that he began to break the head of that snake to kill the ancient dragon. It was a quest that he endeavored to prepare a home for his people until they were ready to receive it. It was a quest that brought forth a king from a rather auspicious birth. And it is a quest that brings forth hope in such a powerful way that even the most horrendous death and evil finds meaning and purpose in it. In this quest, God makes himself to be found within the womb of a virgin, born into humanity, taking upon the name Jesus, which means literally God saves. And as he lives his perfect life and he goes out and he searches for the quest treasure to gather them back to himself, he shows that even his own holy, innocent, divine blood is not considered to be as precious as the treasure he purchases with it. Stephanie, this is the best part of the quest. Because that means that you are the treasure. 
that we are the treasure hidden in the field. You are that pearl of great price that God quested for from the very beginning of time. And here is the you catastrophe in life that we search for. When we're in those moments of scrambling to be part of the inner circle, when we find ourselves bogged down into a show hole as a Netflix show comes to an end and we're not sure where to go from that, as we're looking to cover up all that cultural malaise and weariness that we carry around with us. The you catastrophe is that in the midst of suffering under the most horrendous death at a crucifixion, God overcomes death and the grave and the curses. And he promises us a new birth that while we are contaminated with that dragon sickness and it may hurt, he is going to rip off the dragon scales so that we can truly be the people he created us to be. And for as long as we are searching for that joy, there's evidence that there's something greater for us. I feel like if every single sermon was like that, we would all walk out with goosebumps every single time. I mean, this journey has been absolutely crazy and we didn't necessarily find what we thought we were going to when we set on this quest. But we did find a lot of interesting things to think about and really understand what our vocation and calling is and that we can't do it by ourselves no matter how much we stubbornly try. And we also discovered the fantastic thing that C.S. Lewis reminds us in his writings that if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's one of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis because it's just so hard to comprehend, even though it seems so probable. Please check us out on Facebook and Instagram. We are going to take a little bit of a break. Being teachers, life is getting pretty crazy, especially around the holiday season. But we still want to continue dialoguing with you. So leave us comments, like our page, and please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you subscribe. Thank you for joining us on this quest to discover the catastrophe hidden in the worlds around us as we explored life, imagination, and everything. Narnia is just one of the many worlds visited by Lewis's literary children. Who knows where we'll end up when we jump into the wardrobe.